0: So, Philippians 2, 14 through uh, 14 and into 16, and you guys will probably be able to tell pretty quickly what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Remember, we're talking we're in the communication series, so this is going to be another aspect of communication. Verse 14: Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Um, So as we're getting started in this communication series, I did think it would be a good start to talk about something, you know, talk about grumbling and disputing, uh, complaining, uh, because it is so prevalent, it's so overarching to so much of our communication and what we come across in the world, even what we come across with one another in the church and you know, frankly, it's often habitual um, and uh, yet often undetected as a habit of ours to do so, in ourselves anyway. We, 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 it certainly affects us all, whether we are in the habit of complaining and grumbling and disputing, and we do it ourselves, or more likely we are recognizing it in others but missing it in ourselves, missing the fact that we are in it, we get in a habit of it, and we oftentimes justify it, in ourselves as well. So, hopefully, we'll uh, be able to look at this well this morning and consider how we might not be able to do that. Um, so, I'm hoping this morning is going to be fruitful, making us more mindful of how we grumble and murmur and complain. What's behind that, and what we can change to be in conformity to God's will in this area. So, we will not, uh, obviously, we're not going to be covering this topic exhaustively uh this morning we don't have enough time for that i am going to continue into next week but i'm going to cover a different kind of complaining and uh it's, it's going to be a useful time i think um but at the end of this uh, and i pulled from a lot of different resources for this in fact i think i overdid it and spent entirely too much time reading through stuff uh, and sort of running thin on time towards the end studying uh, but i uh, pulled from several podcasts a couple of conference messages and an article and, and then a uh, a couple of MacArthur sermons, and that's what I would uh, really recommend getting is MacArthur, listening to the Car- MacArthur sermons, and I'll give you guys all the links after the fact, as usual. So, some really good stuff out there. And it's funny to me, I was thinking, as Chris was quoting MacArthur this morning in church, I was thinking, when we first got to this church, I kept hearing everybody saying, MacArthur did this, and MacArthur said that, and MacArthur said this, and I'd be like, why? Why do, they just keep, why do, they just, why do we have to keep bringing up MacArthur and now every single week I feel like I bring up MacArthur. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, you know, it's just a solid. Yvonne and I have this discussion all the time. He's just solid throughout, and through so many decades of teaching, he's just been faithful, and it's just so uh, good to to go there and know that there's going to be something there that's useful uh, and usually very useful. And as we consider the sin of complaining, um, you know, we can sometimes consider this, we don't really consider this as, a serious sin, you know, as Jerry Bridges would call it, a respectable sin. Uh, you know, if, if we were Roman Catholics or, you know, papists, as the uh, Puritans would say, if, if, we were, if we were Catholics, we wouldn't even consider this one of the seven deadly sins, right? It wouldn't be even close. It'd be like number 20 or something. Uh, we don't often think of complaining as being a serious thing like murder or adultery or something. Uh, it's not even up there. So a lot of times we dismiss it. A lot of times we don't even recognize it in ourselves because we don't think of it seriously. However, the Puritans didn't see it that way. Uh, Thomas uh, Manton described complaining as the scum of discontent and the vent of impatience. The scum of discontent. I mean, he was serious about this being a bad thing. And when we say discontent, I I hope you guys realize that uh, complaining and discontentment Go hand in hand. So as we're talking about this this morning, a lot of what we're going to be referring to is discontentment because discontentment comes out in our complaining. It's that heart condition coming out, and that's how, it come, that's how discontentment oftentimes comes out publicly or you know, to others is in our complaining. So what are, and this is just be a general list, but what are some of the problems with complaining? Well, it expresses discontentment, as we said. Uh, related it expresses a lack of thankfulness that when we are thankful we do not complain we rejoice instead Uh, but when we are unthankful that's when we start complaining when we're not considering the things we have to be thankful for it implies that god has not blessed and provided as he should that he's not a good god That's one of the major things that the Puritans addressed. I'm not going to talk too much about this morning, but one of the major things that they saw as a problem with complaining is just lack of faith, essentially. Lack of belief in that we just don't trust God to be a good God. And so, therefore, it comes out in complaining. It comes out in expressing that God should have done something different than He did. It encourages others to complain also. Complainers... Hang around with complainers. And people who aren't complainers oftentimes become complainers when they hang around complainers, right? I mean, that's complaining. You get two complainers in a room, they'll find each other. That's usually the way it works. This and this is what the world does. We are gonna, I mean, we just read that. That do all things without grumbling or so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and as children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In the world. We're going to be set apart when we don't complain because that's what the world does. So that's another problem with it. Here's a very practical one. It's a very poor stewardship of our time and words. I mean, there's any other number of things that we could be saying or doing instead of complaining that would be a blessing to others, that would be pleasing to God, that would be glorifying God. But instead, we choose to use that thought and time and energy into saying things that are, that are grumbling and complaining. And lastly, it's driven by misplaced or misdeveloped expectations. We've talked a lot about expectations in here. And when we set our expectations on the wrong things or on the right things to the wrong extent, then a lot of times when that doesn't come out the way we expected it to, we complain about it. We're discontented with the way the expectation, our expectation wasn't met. So when we misplace or misdirect our expectations, we're setting ourselves up to be complaining afterwards. So we're not going to address all of these factors this morning. I just wanted to bring those up because I'm sure that something in there registered with somebody in here. <laughs> Hopefully all of you found something in that list that, that seemed to be true for you when you complain. Um, so we're going to cover some of them, though. Uh, it seems good to think these things through, consider what drives our own complaining. Now, complaining, something I didn't put in the list in, in an overarching way, complaining, is all—it's uh, uh, as all other sin is, is rooted in pride. We think more highly of ourselves and our opinions and what we want uh, than we do of others and what God would have us to do. What do we know about? What God thinks about pride? Well, just a few reminders of what God thinks about pride. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Abomination is a pretty strong word. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Isaiah 2, 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Habakkuk 2, 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. In James 4 and 1 Peter 5, both quoting the Old Testament, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs eight thirteen: The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth, I hate. God hates pride. We're also going to see that God hates complaining. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Now, we don't have to look very hard for examples of what happens to the proud in Scripture, right? We can look at Nebuchadnezzar and Herod as just a couple of examples. You know, Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years living like an animal outside, and Herod dropped dead and was eaten by worms uh, because of their pride directly. Pharaoh... Was proud and we see the results of that he refused to to bend to god's direction he suffered the loss of his firstborn son his army in addition to his entire land getting destroyed by plagues because of his pride his refusal to submit to god so god considers pride to be an extremely serious offense so how is complaining rooted and pride among other wrong thinking Our pride drives us to believe that our circumstances and relationships should be the way we believe they should be rather than the way God would have them to be or what God brings into our life. Whatever God brings, God brings and that's what's best for us. But we don't see it that way. We see it as it should be different because we think that our way is best when we're thinking wrongly in our pride. In our self-centered mentality, we get disturbed when our circumstances and relationships cause us any inconvenience. Any time we're inconvenienced, we think This isn't the way it should be, right? Of course, we see God's hatred for complaining when we read the account of the Israelites. Now, those of you who may have taken up my challenge of reading through the Old Testament in a few months, um, nobody's going nodding. So, okay. Um, Anyway, if you go back into the Old Testament and if you look at Exodus and Numbers and you see how God dealt with His people after bringing them out of Egypt, we see them complaining, over, and God saves them miraculously, delivers them out of the hand of Pharaoh. He keeps saving them, keeps providing for them, keeps giving them food to eat and water to drink. And what do they do? They keep complaining, and they keep complaining. And we see it over and over again. And what do we see God's response to that? As you read through Exodus, particularly in Numbers, we see that God killed thousands of the Israelites, His own chosen people, He chose them, he saved them, and then he kills thousands of them at a time. Not once, several times, in several different ways, because they were complaining. They were complaining, he says, fine, you want to complain? This is what happens when you complain, and thousands of them died. In summarizing the Puritan's view on complaining, Stephen Yule says... They saw it as a dangerous thing because it does ultimately reveal the condition of the heart. It tells us something isn't right. We've lost perspective. It's no longer biblical truth that's informing our judgment. They would have affirmed that grumbling indicates to some degree we've lost sight of God's matchless grace. If grumbling is replacing thanksgiving, then obviously God's grace and mercy have been minimized to some extent in our experience. And they really saw grumbling as dangerous and leading to other sins because ultimately it impedes sight. Grumbling causes tunnel vision. When we get into that kind of attitude of heart where we grumble or murmur and we become so fixated on our current circumstances, we can quickly lose sight of what's going on around us, quickly lose perspective as to what's important and what isn't important. So as we complain, we feed our discontent. We feed our lack of view of what God is doing. We, we feed our lack of seeing God's grace in our life and being thankful. He added, "You'll added, grumbling never travels alone. It always has sisters in tow. Things like bitterness and resentment, malice and anger, and it can really become a domino effect and lead us to other sins." because when we feed that, we become more bitter. We, become, we move into malice, and we continue to have anger. MacArthur says, The tragedy of this particular sin is that it is so contagious. So MacArthur listed some of the things that cause us to complain, and this is not, these are not biblical. This is not a biblical list. So I want you guys to listen to this list, and you'll probably get why as soon as I get a couple into it, okay? So these are, this is a list of some of the things that cause us to complain. He says, here are typical things that cause people to have increased blood pressure that makes them angry and hostile, even sometimes make them violent. Things like, for example, traffic jams bring incredible hostility, anger, and complaint. Slow drivers in front of you can be enough to cause you to lose your sanctification. Freeway cutters who cut in front of you. The freeway is an interstate, for those of you who don't. <laughs> uh, talkative people irritate you. Long lines, short lines, any lines. Having one person in front of you makes you complain. You want it your, your way and now. Crying babies. If you don't think there was a terrible fright, he wasn't calling them crying babies. He was saying crying babies cause people to complain. It, but he, it's interesting what he says, though, and I think this too, that maybe crying babies doesn't cause you to complain, or to have your blood pressure rise. But he says, if you don't think there's a terrible, frightening, brooding discontent over crying babies, then ask ask yourself, why is there such an increase of frightening child abuse precipitated by crying babies? Once held to the breast of a mother, now hit with an iron or a frying pan, who knows what. So the abuse for even babies that are crying comes out of this frustration phone calls at inappropriate times misplaced keys would you believe great trauma caused by that non-housebroken puppies i mean we really in our 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 housebroken dog what about kids Kids. (laughs) kids. i think kid yeah that's true (laughs) he says i mean i mean we really get distressed by the biggies don't we but you see it's a mood stuck zippers especially if you're already in the car halfway there cold food we not only want it we want not only want it we want it the temperature we want it somebody interrupting your conversation noisy neighbors being rushed by your husband or wife late airplanes tight clothes unsuccessful diets peeling onions squeaking doors incompetent people around you flat tires when you're in a hurry or anytime right <clears throat> doing the dishes your mother-in-law Weeds, high prices. These are the things that. Imagine that. These are the things that generate hostility in people and cause tremendous conflict in marriage. Now, I hope you guys heard that list and did better than I did because I had to admit to several of those that they caused me to have higher blood pressure and to complain. Um, and but, really stupid things. When we read, when we read it like that and we think it through, we're like. Yeah, I do complain about that, and that's really stupid. It's such a small thing. But we do. We complain about it. We think, particularly as Americans, that stuff should just go the way we want it. We think that things should just go our way as as Americans. Our expectations are developed from when we're little that we can get what we want and get it the way we want it. Then when things don't happen the way we want, we are discontent and complain. As, as I said, as complaining is so closely tied to discontentment, we're going to discuss them almost interchangeably in some of this. Discontentment and lack of gratitude are not easily spotted in our lives. We often don't consider ourselves to be discontented or thankful, but these are exactly the reasons we complain, is because we are discontented and unthankful. But we often don't recognize it in our lives because we just don't think of ourselves as being that way. So after providing that convicting list of things that we complain about, MacArthur adds... Now, if you're in Hiroshima and it's 1945, you have a problem worthy of considerable concern. But just because you lost out on a promotion or a business deal, just because your child announced last week that she hates her room, just because the bank notified you this morning that you're overdrawn, I'm sure you can find a way to survive. I hear all about midlife crisis. Do you know that there are nations in the world that don't ever have midlife crisis because they don't live that long? Some people aren't bothered by such things at all. There are parts of the world where the average lifespan is 37 years, and men and women are spared the distressing reality of hitting their 40th birthday. Some people complain about grocery bills. More than 10,000 people die of starvation every day, and we're complaining about grocery bills. Millions more suffer from malnutrition. Some people say they complain about the high cost of rent. Well, maybe you'd rather be a pavement dweller in Calcutta. They don't pay rent. They're born, live, and die on the pavement. The only thing they have to worry about is to find a rag they can put under their head when they go to sleep. You see, while these kind of horrors go on around the world in sort of normal, accepted pace, we get uptight because we got seated at a poorly located table in a fancy restaurant. Or we're frustrated because we can't lose 10 pounds. Or we gripe about our monthly debts. You've got problems relative to to what? But you see, it's the mood of the mob to complain. And then the idealistic, fantasy-oriented, consumptive culture This sounds like MacArthur, right? Fantasy-oriented, consumptive culture feeds the sin of discontent. How can we be discontent in all that God has blessed us with, especially as Americans? He's given us so much. How can we be discontent and complain? But yet we do. We struggle with this. Now, I started out by reading Philippians uh, 2, 16, 16 through 18. And I'll paraphrase that as do all things without complaining, Uh, but the more full meaning would be without murmuring to others or trying to make a rational argument why things should be different than they are. So there's two different words there, grumble and dispute. And the the idea is you're just murmuring and complaining about, which I think Chris talked about last week in this sermon, Um, just grumbling and complaining to others about And then there's the other side of it of trying to make a rational case to justify it, to try and argue with God, essentially, and to make a case for why you should be unhappy and why you should be able to complain. Paul addresses later in Philippians why he no longer struggles to be content. And you'll understand why he he said no longer struggles that way. Philippians 4, 10 through 13, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, Susan Heck, she's a counselor, writer, conference speaker, she said, she boiled these four verses into four principles. So I'm going I'm to give you the principles and some other thoughts in between. First, Principles. So verse 10, Paul entrusted his needs to God. It says that he rejoiced in the Lord greatly because he rejoiced in the Lord. The Philippians brought this gift and they sent Epaphroditus to him with this gift that was going to meet his needs. However, he saw that as coming from the Lord. He rejoiced in the Lord greatly that he had provided for him. One of our problems causing discontentment driving us to complain is that we consider our sometimes idolatrous wants and desires. We consider the things that a lot of times are idols for us, our wants and desires. We consider those as needs. They're not needs. They're wants. And sometimes it's very difficult for us to tell the difference. Not because we're looking at it biblically and we can't tell the difference, just because we think we need it. We just think we need what it is that we want. They're not Oftentimes needs, they're oftentimes wants instead. God has promised to supply all our needs. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a few verses later. That's His conclusion. God's going to supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. He has not promised to provide for all our desires, even the good ones. He has promised to provide for our needs. We need to be clear on what our needs really are. So what are those? Well, if we go to 1 Timothy 6, but, verses 6 through 8, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. God has provided our needs. Food and covering is what we actually need. Do we, are we satisfied with that? I would say in this room, we're probably never satisfied with just plain food and covering, the absolute necessities. We think we need so much more. Susan Heck, had a, uh, uh, she said, recent statistics tell us that Americans spend more money on storing their stuff in storage units than they do on spending money at Burger King, McDonald's, and Wendy's combined. And you guys know how much fast food gets bought out there. We spend more money on our stuff, storing it. Do you remember what Jesus said in the parable about the man who built more barns for his stuff? He said, you fool, do you not know that your soul will be required of you tonight? And that's, I think, as Americans and even as East Tennesseans, with the values going up and all that stuff for finding a house, building a house, whatever, we're looking for space for our stuff. Paul knew what the real key to contentment was, and it wasn't anything that this world had to offer. God is faithful. You can recall His faithfulness throughout your history. You can see His faithfulness in the present, and you can anticipate His faithfulness. You can confidently anticipate His faithfulness into the future. Number two, Paul learned contentment by hardships. He says, I've learned to be content. This is what I mean. He no longer is discontent and complaining because he learned to be content that word learned doesn't mean he read it in a book it means he learned it by experience what we would call the hard way he learned it by by experiencing it so that he might fully understand it now if you guys don't remember the hardships of paul you can remind, you can review them in 2nd corinthians 11 but shipwreck being persecuted in every different way, beaten up, all kinds of stuff. He spent 25% of his life in prison. I didn't realize that was the number, but that's a lot. It's a lot of years. Did God use him there? Yep. A lot of letters were written from prison that we are encouraged and challenged by now, including Philippians, which we're looking at this morning. The whole Praetorian guard heard the gospel while Paul was in prison. And a lot of them became believers. Onesimus, who ran away from his owner, became a believer and was restored to service in relationship with his master Philemon. Those are just a few things that were results of Paul being in prison. So even in prison, God used him. He had things to be thankful for in being used by God in those ways. You know, as God, as we experience hard things, and we trust God in it because those hard things come to us because God has ordained that they come to us. And we trust God in them. And in, that difficult, in those challenges and in those difficulties, we mature, we grow in grace, we're sanctified through those difficult circumstances, particularly when they're long ones. We are being placed into a position of being able to relate later and to sympathize with and encourage others who are also going through challenges and difficulties. When, they, when you meet people later, you have opportunity to influence them, and they are going through challenges, circumstances, relationships. We should hope in the fact that we, as we are going through our challenges, we are being refined into a way that we can help others as well. And thinking that through, it's hard to see that. When, we, when we're in the midst of a difficulty and a challenge, it's hard to go, yeah, I'm so glad I'm in this because God is training me for helping others later. That's not usually what we think, but we would be good to do so. We would be good to be considering, this is a hard thing. What is God wanting to teach me through this? That I might be able to encourage somebody else. God wastes no situation He brings into your life, even the disciplines or consequences for your sin. If we look at Hebrews 12, see uh, verses 5 through 11, it says, You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It goes on, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Remember, we read in Proverbs that the father that does not discipline his son hates his son. So we can surmise from this that God is relating this to a father who loves his child and disciplines him. So we can count on all things that God brings into our life, even when he's disciplining us, that he's doing it for our good, for our growth that we could share in his holiness. Number three, we need to learn to live independent of our circumstances. So Paul uses a play on words here. uh, When he says that I have learned the secret, he said, and, uh, in verse 12, he says, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. And that, that word that he used for learned, uh, it actually was something that was more used in the Gnostic religions of the day or to describe the, the Gnostic religions, which they were all about knowledge. In effect, he's, he's, he's saying, I know the inside secret to being content. I've learned it. I've learned this inside secret. And I can be content no matter what my circumstances are. Susan Heck says, Paul held the things of this world loosely. He had already said that his citizenship was in heaven. That's where it is. He lived for the kingdom to come. His God was not his appetite. He had already talked about the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God was their belly. So he was not in that camp. He was not going to be ruled. He was not going to be worshiping that what was in the world. He was not idolizing those things that he could have. He was looking to his future in the kingdom to come and serving the one God who would be there in glory. Number four, we need to draw upon our resources in Christ Jesus. God provided His only Son to meet our greatest need, salvation from His own judgment. And He will provide all else that we need. God does what is best for us always. Romans 8, 31, 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So, so the God who sacrificed his only son for us, that we might be in right relationship with him, is surely not going to let us lack for the good that he has for us in every other way. So now if we go back to where we started, Philippians 2, 14 through 16, it says, do all things without complaining. So why? Why do we do all things without complaining? Well, Verses 15 and 16, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So what happens when we don't complain? What's the purpose? Well, not complaining sets us apart from the world that complains. It's what the world does. It only takes a few minutes of watching or reading any news media outlet and you are going to hear complaining or listening to the people on the street around you, or at the hair salon, I've heard, or being around unbelieving co-workers. I mean, when you're at work, you hear complaining. That's what they do. We just experience that that's what the world does. It's easy to see. They complain. Unfortunately, so do we, and we're like the world when we do it. When we don't complain, we show ourselves to be children of God. That's how we set ourselves apart, being children of God. We strive to be like God, exhibiting that our trust is not in this world, but it's in the God who made the world. It's in the God that has everything in His hands. And then we have the word of life to hold out to them. They're not going to hear us. If we're complaining and we're whining and we're grumbling like like the world is around us, they don't care what we have to say about the gospel. They don't care what we have to say about God and Christ and and what He's done for us on the cross. It hasn't made any change in us. We seem just like them. MacArthur pointed out that the better translation here, um, some of your Bibles say holding forth or holding fast. Holding forth is the better translation. The context tells us that we are holding forth the word to the world we are interacting with. We have opportunity to do so when we exhibit joy in the world. So when we're joyful in God, when we're joyful in what Christ has done for us, we have opportunity to hold forth the word. It's going to be more readily received and heard when we exhibit that joy that we have in our salvation. We're called to be joyful. Paul refers to joy and rejoice 15 times in these four chapters in Philippians. That's a lot just one little short book. Not only are we not to complain, we're to be joyful. And I know I've I've mentioned Wilberforce in this before, and I've mentioned Piper's biography about Wilberforce. I'm mentioning it again, okay? So, and I'll give you the link for it. It's really worth listening to, okay? But one thing that, the thing that Wilberforce was known for was the joy was the dominant characteristic of his life. He suffered... In the midst of massive opposition, multiplied serious ongoing health issues and family difficulties also, he was known for his joy. Everybody knew this stuff was going on in his life, and yet he was known for his joy. So I'll provide that link again if you want to read. it. Andrew Rogers puts it this way regarding joy. The call of God is that we live with an attitude of rejoicing. That's more of a frame of our soul. It's a frame of our spirit. It's like our primary disposition as though who have been called by God, redeemed by His blood, and made alive by His spirit. There's a primary disposition of rejoicing and of being con- content content, content in whatever situation that we find ourselves in. Psalm 81.1, sing for joy to God our strength. When the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem was completed and the celebration, celebrating had begun, Nehemiah told the people that joy in the Lord was their strength. That was their strength. Their joy in the Lord was their strength. When we make evident to the world that we trust the God who has all things in His hands, that we can rejoice and be content in the midst of all the difficult circumstances that come into our lives, we shine like stars in the dark night sky. That's what it says. We shine in the dark night. We shine as the moon and as the stars we shine in the sky as being different from what's going on in the world. But when we complain, we're part of that darkness. We're just a mix. We're, we're in that mix. We're not apart from it. So how do we mortify complaining and replace it with expressing joy and thanksgiving? How do we put off complaining and put on thankfulness? Well, be thankful. <laughs> but you know but it's not you know it's not any different process first we need to start paying attention to when we complain and that's what i'm saying we we a lot of times we don't even recognize that we're doing it we just do it it's just what we do and we need to be mindful and start paying attention to when we complain most of us will be surprised when we actually start tracking and or noticing when and how often we complain and that you know devotional time in the morning time of prayer, consider, examine. What happened this previous day? Or better yet, have it in your mind on a regular basis and be paying attention throughout the day. Am I complaining? And just start paying attention to it. Secondly, we remind ourselves, that was the put off and now, uh, or that was a recognizing in the way and we're going to put off. We remind ourselves of God's hatred for complaining in the New Testament command to not complain as we've addressed this morning. You can memorize Philippians 2, 14 through 16, or choose a psalm or other passage with exhortation to thanksgiving and rejoicing. Third, we intentionally think on and express thankfulness to God as well as to others for both what God has done and what they do in pleasing God. So we need to be thankful to God, but we also need to be thankful to others and for others. Uh, we need to recognize when God is doing things through them, when they are growing in grace, or when they just do something kind. We need to be noticing, it, to be thankful for these things. If our spouses and kids hear thankfulness and observe joy in the Lord in us, they will learn it also. Grumbling is highly contagious. Thankfulness and joy are contagious too. For those who were born again and, ind- and dwelt with the Spirit. I would say for the unbeliever, joy and thanksgiving is not contagious, but complaining is. And we have that indwelling sin, that remnant of sin, that flesh that we deal with that's going to give us a bent towards complaining before giving us a bent to being joyful and thankful. So we need to be mindful of these things. On joy, Wilberforce quotes, or Piper quotes Wilberforce. He says, we can scarcely indeed look into any part of the sacred volume, scripture, without meeting abundant proofs that it is the religion of the affections which God particularly requires. Joy is enjoined on us as our bounden duty and commended to us as our acceptable worship. A cold, unfeeling heart is represented as highly criminal. It's high sin to be have a cold and unfeeling heart or in our context this morning, a complaining heart. But we are commanded to be joyful. And when we do so, we glorify God. Um, I was going to read through Psalm 37. Uh, Read through Psalm 37 because I'm out of time. Um, So, as I said, I've got the resources. I will put those in the notes, or I'll put those on the resources on the uh, Becoming One page on church center so um but as you sit down for your devotional time if you want to read through psalm 37 it would be helpful to you as you contemplate on what we talked about this morning talking about all the things that the wicked does all the things that the righteous do and considering the judgment that god is going to have on the righteous even as they are persecuting on the the wicked even as they are persecuting the righteous. We can look to what God is going to do in His justice in the end. So, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and that you are so direct with us that you have made it clear that you despise grumbling and disputing, complaining and murmuring. I I do think that we um, oftentimes don't recognize these things in our own lives and I, I can say that for myself and I pray that you would give us all eyes and ears and and understanding and, and the ability to recognize these things as we do it, and, and particularly if it's a pattern in our life and a habit, that we would be mindful to consider how to put this off and to put on joy and thankfulness instead, that we would be mindful to come to your word, to think on your word in these things, and that we would be applying it well. Lord, I pray that we would do this not only uh, in glorifying you and in and, uh, being a being blessed in it ourselves, but that we would be a blessing to our spouses, that we'd be a blessing to our kids, and that we would um, honestly have opportunity to, to hold your word forth to those that we are in contact with because they see the joy that is within us as we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.